Hey everybody, Magnus here. Just wanted to touch base with you guys real quick and just let you know that the episode that you're about to hear was originally scheduled to come out a long time from now, but basically the the episode that I had planned, the one that you were supposed to hear right now, that ended up falling through. And that's really not anybody's fault. You know, as it is with me and Chris Honeywell with our big book reports, where I truly don't know when the next big book report is going to be released because of the fact that his work schedule is crazy, my work schedule is crazy, and so it may not be possible to record another one for quite a while. I honestly don't know when the next big book report is coming out. Well, same thing applies here. The episode that you that you were supposed to hear this time around I know I'm going to do it. I just don't know when I'm going to have a chance to do it. And what I decided is if I can't do it, if I can't do it properly, I'm just not going to do it at all. You know, until such time as it, as I can do it the way that I want to do it, I'm just not going to do it, you know? And like I say, as with uh, me and Chris Honeywell with the big book report episodes, this isn't really anybody's fault. There's, there's just a, a particular guest that I want to have on this episode, and suffice it to say, that guest has been extremely busy lately, you know, with uh, professional commitments, with basically an emergency situation that popped up just kind of out of nowhere. That happened. And there's also some, you know, some family stuff, just, you know, basic family things that just come along sometimes that require your attention. This person has been extremely busy with life lately. And for my own part, I've had a kind of a hectic time at work lately. I haven't really had very much of a chance to do any kind of recording. Now, you're still going to receive, you know, new episodes each week because I recorded a bunch of shit ahead of time. You know, that's why I do this. That way, those times when I get busy, you guys won't, you hopefully won't even know the difference except for the big book report. But hey, what can you do, right? So uh, that's why I do things the way that I do. You know, I mean, I made you guys a promise. You're going to get a new episode every week. And I've tried like hell to make sure that happens. So um, like I say, this isn't really anybody's fault. It's not that uh, my guest host is completely the one to blame or I'm the one that's completely to blame or anything like that. It's just that this this guest and I cannot get our schedule synced up the way that we need to in order to do any kind of recording. And like I say, until such time as we can sit down together and, and record the episode that I want to record, until we can record that properly, I'm just not going to do it. You know, I'd rather wait until it can be done well rather than get it done right now, but it's kind of shitty, you know, because I don't think that benefits anybody. So that's my decision. I, I stand by it. So anyway, so like I say, the episode that you're about to hear right now, this is not what was originally scheduled, but you know, this is really the best I could do under the circumstances. And it kind of fits in with the unfinished uh, uh, business thing, this kind of, this model that I'm working with, this mega series of revisiting a bunch of shit that I told you guys I'd come back to at some point or another, but like, fucking never did. Well, the episode that you're about to hear actually fits very well within that milieu. So, anyway, I'm gonna go ahead and shut up now, and enjoy 
the rest of the episode. I've studied the form of comics intimately. What you need is a hobby. Words and pictures, it could be more of an art form. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know, it's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a devil, a blind lawyer, you know? We have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are a last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football, Year-round, nobody cares. Basketball, year-round, nobody cares. Put on a Star Trek uniform, people get a case of the giggles. Yeah, hi, somebody told me they make comic books here. That's from Superman? Smallville. You have been trying that Jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade. It doesn't work. Oh, it works. You guys must read too many comic books or something. People do not masturbate in the DC universe. That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. Hello, and welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I do is talk about comics, movies, and TV shows, and I do it so much that all my friends, family members, co-workers, random passers-by on the street, they all basically told me to shut up about this stuff, or... If I can't shut up about it, stop talking to them about it and just do the smart thing and start up my own podcast about it. So I decided to start up a podcast about it and I call it Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, wherein I discuss comics, movies, and TV shows. You see? It all fits. This week, I'm going to be talking about a comic uh, called The Shadow Strikes. Now, for those of you who don't remember, I talked about... The Shadow Strikes, number one, at, I would say, fairly decent length, a pretty long time ago. And, guys, I'm not even going to pretend that I understand this, but that was basically meant to be kind of a, a mea culpa type of episode, right? That episode, and I'm going off memory here, but as I recall, that episode was actually supposed to be about the contest the wonder woman story called the contest right and i was supposed to get together with gene hendrix and then he and i were going to talk about the contest and then whatever happened happened it just couldn't work out so i just decided you know what talking about the contest is apparently not meant to be so instead i'm going to talk about something else and so i decided to talk about the Shadow Strikes, number one. I just kind of picked that at random. I thought, you know what? I love that comic. It's amazing. And that's what I'm going to talk about for that episode, right? And that literally is as much thought as I invested in it, right? So imagine my surprise when that episode went on to be one of... I, guys, I kid you not. One of the most successful episodes, if download numbers are anything to go by, one of the most successful episodes that I have ever released, you know? And I think for, 
Uh, let me let me think here. For the months of January, February, March, and April of 2016, guys, that Shadow Strikes number one show that I did was the most downloaded episode of the entire Two True Freaks Network. Right? I'm not exaggerating. That was number one with a fucking bullet. You know? And it kind of tapered off after that, but to be like number one for that fucking long, obviously something I did, it struck a chord with people. So, in any case, I was planning to come back to the Shadow Strikes at some point or another. And today is at some point or another. So, before I get into that, <sighs> Lord of the Rings. I think it probably makes sense to justify the music that you're probably hearing in the background right now. Now, I gotta say, Lord of the Rings has been one of those geek franchises that I just didn't get. You know? And I distinguish this from Doctor Who, where it's not so much that I don't get it, it's that I don't care to get it. Ignorance and hostility aren't the same thing, after all, but Lord of the Rings, right? Just didn't really understand. And this is not without some amount of effort on my part, you understand? I mean, I tried. Tried. Tried, 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 tried like hell to read The Hobbit when I was 15. But after about 30 or 40 pages of Bilbo talking about taking some dumbass journey but not really doing much of anything, I just gave up. My reason for this, for those of you who are having heart attacks right now, my reason for this is because when it comes to stories and whatnot, I'm a plot guy, you know? And that's going to come up again, bear with me here, but... I guess to kind of move things along in sequence, the Lord of the Rings movies came along and I saw them all in theaters, but mostly because that's what everyone else in my little circle of friends wanted to do. Left to my own devices, I probably would have skipped them. Partly because of my futile attempt to read The Hobbit when I was a kid, like I say, and partly because that whole sword and sorcery bit really isn't my scene. But... As I watched the movies, one thing that became very clear was that there's something about this trilogy. Alright? Couldn't put my finger on it, but there's something about that trilogy that pretty much deserves the reputation that it has. And at long last, I think I've cracked the code. The act of doing so has opened the door to being... Well, I, I can't really say a Lord of the Rings fan, but at least I can appreciate the films on some level. Basically, though, everybody knows that Star Wars is myth. Now, my contention is and has been that the original trilogy isn't intentionally uh, an echo of myth or a retelling of myth or however you want to look at it. But it is nevertheless an echo of myth, or a retelling of myth, or however you want to look at it. it that, that's what it is, 
But if you watch Star Wars, there's one simple, immutable truth about Star Wars. And there's no real denying it. Star Wars may be myth, but Star Wars isn't really mythic. Make sense? Star Wars, intentionally or not, is a pretty clear retelling of the traditional hero's journey. You've got the naive youth who gets called to adventure, he tries to reject it, ultimately gets forced to embrace it, and over time becomes a hero. And that's myth, no denying it, but that's not really mythic. Lord of the Rings, start to finish, is filled to overflowing with huge visuals and, and music and action, etc. It's supposed to be myth and mythic. Huge themes contrasted against the biggest of the big, the smallest of the small, the mediumest of the medium, I guess, and all that. But that's, that's not the only place where they differ. Star Wars is a story. Take everything else away, and Star Wars is a story. Lord of the Rings has a story, yes, but it's meant to be more than that. J.R.R. Tolkien wrote the books of his Legendarium to form an immersive, mythic epic. And I think it'd be fair to say that Peter Jackson did all in his power to bring that same type of literary experience into a cinematic format. So, I guess to put it in other terms, Star Wars is a story. Lord of the Rings is a history. Now, my natural tastes, like I say, are for plot. A leads to B, leads to C, and so forth. If that's what you want from Lord of the Rings, and I'll admit, that's what I wanted, but if that's what you want from Lord of the Rings, you're coming away disappointed. So. Of course Lord of the Rings left me cold. In my natural state, I could give a flaming shit about the significance of this sword, or the importance of that bridge, or the history of that fucking teacup or something, you know? To me, that stuff was all just meaningless fucking bullshit. But it's not supposed to be. Lord of the Rings is supposed to be an immersive experience. Your investment isn't just in the characters. As much as anything, you're invested in their world. You're supposed to understand that for as big and epic as Lord of the Rings is, it's actually the closing chapter of a much bigger history. In and of itself, Lord of the Rings is the story about how Frodo helped destroy the One Ring. That's the microscopic level. But the macroscopic level is where and how all of this fits into the entire history of Middle-earth. So, all the different languages, the different swords, the different races of people, these things may be tangential to Lord of the Rings as a story, but they are absolutely essential to Lord of the Rings as a chapter in the history of Middle-earth. I'll give you an example. When Gimli leads the Fellowship into the Mines of Moria, he should have known from the outset that something was seriously fucked up. And as viewers, we should have known it too. 
long before the orcs arrive. Because if you're familiar with the workings of dwarves and how they operate mines, alarm bells should be going off the instant the fellowship set foot inside the mines. To give a real-world comparison to all of this, because this truly is the best thing I could think of, it's like wanting to know the story about how the fall of the Berlin Wall and all of those sorts of things played out while ignoring the events of World War I, World War II, and then subsequently America and the Soviet Union occupying all of Germany. That stuff may be incidental to the exact reason that the Berlin Wall was ultimately torn down, but it's absolutely essential to the history of Germany as a country. Now, that may not be the best example in the world, but it's the best I can, that I can do off the, uh, off the top of my head, so you'll take it and like it. Now, as I say, this stuff may have been obvious to most of you already, but it wasn't to me. And because I didn't understand Lord of the Rings as a history of Middle-earth, I didn't really get into Lord of the Rings as a story. But now that this final piece of the jigsaw puzzle of interpretation has fallen into place for me, the whole thing makes a lot more fucking sense now. And so, because of that, I've decided to bite the bullet. First, I'm going to rewatch The Lord of the Rings, you know, the movies, you know, but the theatrical versions of the movies. I mean, guys, I may have a deeper appreciation for the Tolkien legendarium now, but even I have my limits. And then, once that's done, I think I'm going to read The Lord of the Rings novels, and who knows, maybe I'll read The Hobbit too. No promises, though. Now, for those of you who put a premium on accuracy, let me just say, I'm not saying I'll ever talk about this stuff on Trinus Magnus Punches Reality. And the reason for that is because I seriously don't think that I'm going to be able to say something about the work of J.R.R. Tolkien that somebody else can't and probably hasn't said better. So why would I want to compete with that? I'm not saying I'm going to talk about it, but I'm not saying I won't either. I'm just saying that at least as far as the fanboy muse is concerned, that's where things are headed right now. So, anyway, so I think that's pretty much it uh, for me in this segment. So, I'm going to take a break and be right back to talk about The Shadow Strikes number two in the next segment. Stay tuned. Founding of a family. 
You know we haven't done enough research into the effects of cosmic rays. We've got to take that chance. Conditions are right tonight. Let's go. They're penetrating the ship. Our shielding isn't strong enough. I feel like I'm burning up. Too heavy. Can't move. Too heavy. We're all alive. I feel so strange. You're fading away. I can't see you at all anymore. Look what's happened to you. You're changing. Oh, Reed, not you too. What happened to me? To all of us. I can fly. We gotta use that power to help mankind, right? And so was born the Fantastic Four. Or soon the Mole Man will have the entire world in his power. I am the mightiest living mortal on Earth. And half mankind shall feel that might. The Fantastic Four. Little do they dream they're the palms in the hands of Dr. Doom. Human Torch will be the Puppet Master's next victim. You Earthlings can't change the way I can. That means I'm the most powerful person on Earth. I've been expecting you, for I am the Thinker. I vow never to return, my lord, until the Fantastic Four are no more, and the planet Earth is no more. You're in the presence of the awesome Ramatons, King of Kings, Master of Men, and Lord of the Seven Sons. You're just a muscular freak, blind or hulk. Stop! You must not enter the castle of Diablo. My journey has ended. This planet shall sustain until it has been drained of all elemental life. So speak, Galactus. Flame on! It's clobbering time! The Fantastic Four from the very beginning witnessed the origins of a legend. The Fantasticast. FFcast.Libsyn. Dot com. I'm back now, and I'm actually finally ready to start talking about the Shadow Strikes number two. Now, for those of you keeping track, or I suppose even for those of you who were not keeping track, the last time I talked about an issue of the Shadow Strikes, this was episode number 123, way back in November of 2015. And basically in it, where we left off was the shadow had just rescued somebody by the name of Anastasia from being murdered in a in a uh, in an alley and as all of that was going on Harry Vincent basically some unknown bad guys had gotten the drop on him and then as all of that was going on Margot Lane had gotten herself involved in some kind of a weird, fucked-up sex cult. So, needless to say, big doings going on here. As to this issue, this is The Shadow Strikes, number two. Cover artist is Eduardo Barreto. Cover date is October 1989. Writer is Gerard Jones. Penciler is Eduardo Barreto. Inker is Eduardo Barreto. Colorist is Anthony Tallinn. Letterer is David Cody Wise. Editor is Brian Augustine. 
Plot synopsis, a very general one, is as follows. The year is 1935. While the shadow tracks down a killer operating in New York and in Moscow, Harry Vinson is attacked by gypsies and Margot Lane falls under the thrall of the mysterious Brother Gregor. So, as I say, big doings going on here. Now, as to the issue at hand, uh, basically, I kind of like the way that this thing starts off. It, it's basically, it's all from Harry Vincent's point of view, and from his point of view, he falls from pain into sweet darkness, down a well where sound and memory melt together. And basically, he's having a little bit of a flashback here. He's thinking back to the time that he was considering killing himself by jumping off of a bridge, and as he took the final plunge, an incredibly powerful and strong human arm reached out, grabbed him by the collar, and pulled him back onto the bridge. And Harry basically says, who are you? And the shadowy figure, Shadow, so kind of wonder who this person might be. He's a shadowy figure. Basically says, look, dude, that's really not any of your business. Why are you trying to kill yourself? And so Harry basically tells his story. And when he starts just sort of rambling, the shadow cuts him off and basically explains how things are going to work going forward. The shadow explains... I take lives that have lost their purpose, and I give them purpose. But I ask much in return. You have given me your life. I shall allow you to use it. You shall have work, funds, a place to live, and more than that, a mission. And basically from there he has, he, Harry, has basically to promise his obedience, his loyalty, his complete devotion to the Shadow's work. And when he asks what choice he has, the Shadow says, well, you got the river. So that pretty much brings us up to speed, at least on Harry, the, the salient points of Harry's backstory. He comes to and finds himself being uh, carried around by the thugs who ambushed him in the first place. He comes to, gets the drop on him, beats the shit out of him because it's the 1930s and men were able to just beat the shit out of two people at the same time at the drop of a hat like that. And in the in the process of going through all of this, it comes out that these guys are, were actually paid 10 fucking dollars to kill Harry. 10. That's it. $10. That's the cost of human life. Now, even in 1935, killing somebody for $10 is... You talk about your 50 pieces of silver. There you go. So, anyway. So, Harry kicks both of them into the river. And he ends up catching a ride with a, a truck driver who's delivering produce. And basically gets his ride back to town. Elsewhere, the shadow listens to the echoes vanishing into the canyon walls. Echoes of running footsteps, of lab labored breathing of a sob. He, per he pursued her, meaning Anastasia, but she vanished too quickly, as if she were accustomed to vanishing, as if she were as accomplished at it as he. He could almost believe that she'd never been there. 
and had not left a single sign. And, you know, that kind of speaks a little something, something to, I guess, the shadow's capabilities. You know, I mean, to call the guy a detective, I don't even know if that's accurate anymore because, hey, the shadow knows, right? But he's, he's a good tracker. He's, he's just got this strange, bizarre ability even when there's not really much of a trail to follow, at least on the surface, he can see shit. You know, maybe that's the best way to put it. Now, as it happens here, the big clue, the big giveaway, honestly, any dumbass could have found this because it's a, it's one of Anastasia's earrings and it's kind of got a distinctive shape to it. It's a cross with a little hoop at the top and it almost kind of sort of reminds me of an ankh although not really, it's, it's, just imagine a capital T, right? But instead of the top line, you know, the horizontal line, instead of that being straight across, it's more of like a curve shape. So like I say, not exactly an onk, but for some reason, that's just sort of what it reminds me of, but it's not an onk. I know that. So anyway, so what I'm saying is don't send me all of your fucking emails that say, well, Magnus, you dumbass, this isn't actually an onk. I know it's not an onk. I'm just trying to give you guys a frame of reference on this. Anyway, so it's sort of like a cross, like I say, but instead of like a like a capital T, the way that most crosses, or sorry, you know how most crosses are shaped sort of like a lowercase t? Well, this is more like a capital T, but as I say, instead of a horizontal line across the top, the top line, it's more of like a curve, so it's kind of like a fucked up looking C. It sort of curves downward, right? And I'm using hand gestures right now, even though you can't see my hand gestures because I'm awesome. So anyway, the shadow realizes, hey, it's time to make a phone call. So he puts in a call. It never actually says to whom, but I think we can reasonably guess it's probably Burbank. And he basically says, hey, look, when agents Vincent and Lane contact you, you're supposed to contact me right away. I'm going to be at the Empire Room at the Waldorf Astoria as Lamont Cranston. And tell them that they need to stay by a phone because I there, there's some shit that I need them to do. Hangs up the phone and then he basically says, really to himself, he says that Anastasia has eluded the grave, but she's not going to elude him. Elsewhere, Margot is kind of, sort of, maybe a little bit coming too at this weird fucked up sex cult that she's unwittingly fallen ass backwards into. And that's pretty much uh, that. So she stumbles out and she's basically listening to these sort of high society types talk about how wonderful this whole thing was. Now, look, guys, at the risk of spoiling ahead on this, I do feel that it's kind of Important to say that, at least as far as I know, Rasputin did not actually come to America, right? It's generally easy to believe that after going through all of the bullshit that he went through, 10 to 1, he probably really did die, right? Now, that having been said, I find there's a certain amount of believability to this thing, like what we're seeing here, this kind of weird, fucked up, sick, religious, almost cult type of a thing, I find there's a little bit of, maybe not truth, but believability to this in as much as 
the perception that I always had of the New York upper crust, especially in the 1920s and the 1930s, is, you know what? They probably would do something like this. You know, go to some kind of a weird fucked up sex orgy, you know? And when people talk about the Victorians, which I think we can kind of say that we're dealing with here, this sort of late-term Victorian generation, they believed in religion, or at least I should say they believed in Christianity, but, you know, the stereotype about the Victorians is they believed, and then they stopped believing, at least in Christianity. But, you know, religious belief, I mean, if somebody's religious already to begin with, 10 to 1, they're going to want to have some sort of an outlet for it in some way or another. And, you know, there's a a decadence that a lot of people associate with the 1920s. And I don't mean just shit like people climbing flagpoles or swallowing gold fl- uh, goldfish or, you know, anything like that. I mean, we're talking, you know, sex rituals, drugs, the whole thing, right? The decadence of the 1920s, it's more than just reckless behavior. I mean, it was some kind of twisted stuff at times. And the reason I'm being kind of a pain in the ass about this is because I can kind of picture, you know, these sort of bored 1% type of, I guess, housewives that really don't have anything better to do going to some kind of a weird fucked up little ritual like this, basically joining a cult and having the time of their lives, you know, because it's just decadent enough. You know, it's just weird enough. It's just bizarre enough. You know what I mean? And so this kind of mindless chitter chatter that Margot's overhearing as she's wandering out of this place, I don't know why, but literally from the first time I ever read this comic, this seemed very believable to me. And It's worth mentioning that Gerard Jones, the writer of this book, is a serious student of history, right? I mean, he's a Facebook friend of mine, and he and I have traded uh, private messages. At this point, I honestly, I don't even know how many times, right? Basically talking about, well, honestly, primarily talking about religion, because for some reason, he's fascinated with religion, you know? And so, you know, he's, he sends me messages sometimes with questions, or he sends me messages sometimes whenever he, whenever there's a point, you know, an observation he wants to make. And, you know, what we end up talking about is really actually less about his comic book work and more about his other sort of prose writing novel type work. And, at least at the time that I'm recording this, he's writing a story, not a story, I forgive me. He's writing a book about uh, religion, right? And I guess religious expression in America from about the mid-19th century going to about the mid-20th century. I think, I think that's the shtick of it. All I know is it sounded really fascinating, at least to me, because I get the idea that Gerard Jones is one of those guys who, kind of like me, he kind of regards... Well, I don't know if he regards religion as the most interesting subject in the world, because I do. I mean, to me, look, guys, I love comics. I can't imagine ever not talking about comics, if not to you guys, then to somebody. But for as much as I love comics, to me, there is no comparison between comics and religion. Religion is, without a doubt, the most interesting subject 
in the entire world. There is no competition, you know? And when you start thinking about, I guess, history, which kind of scratches uh, one of Gerard Jones's bigger interests, and then you start talking about religion, which scratches one of my bigger interests, it's how and how are he and I not going to trade messages with each other, right? So I guess what I'm saying is I'm not trying to sound like I'm some kind of big fucking insider here or anything, because trust me, I'm not. I'm just saying that, you know, when it comes to certain hobbies and subjects that I have a very strong interest in, it just so happens that there's a comic book writer out there who has kind of similar subjects and a very, or rather similar interest and similar subjects in a very similar way. So don't read anything more into that than needs to be read, you know? Anyway, to fucking, to bring it all back to the, to the point though, Margot is basically stumbling out of this religious, whatever this thing is. And she's listening to the, to these, just these blue haired old biddies just using this, these kind of t uh, $10 vocabulary words and just kind of talking that just sort of mindless chitter chatter that, you know what, ladies, I hope you don't take offense to this, but I find that women tend to be a little bit more touchy feely about this whole kind of bullshit than I am and that most men are because, you know, whenever I, well, I, I don't know how specific I want to be because I don't want to turn this into like a religious podcast. But when I come out of my religious worship, whichever day it is that I attend it, you know, I mean, there's a feeling of contentment to it, but that's, that's kind of it. You know, I, I don't really feel any kind of great urge to socialize my feelings about it in most cases, or I don't know, put my vast vocabulary or what have you on display. But women, I find, tend to do that. They tend to be a little bit more social in the way that they process these types of experience. And so when, um, these types of experiences. So when one of them says, it was just glorious, supernal, even Vendata never made me feel so fresh, so, so, like the first time I saw Krishnamurti, simply numinous, you know, and they're just talking fucking nonsense. But, you know, the fact that they would attend something like this in the 1930s, I actually find really fucking easy to believe. And the fact that they would socialize this kind of thing amongst each other, I just find that this is a very feminine thing to do. You know, this is something that women, they tend to talk about. You know, when they experience something, they have to find a way to externalize this in conversation. And it's, you know, it's not good, it's not bad, it's just who women are. And that's really not a trait that I share, which is not good, it's not bad, it's just who men are, you know? Or at least that's who I am. So, anyway, like I say, I mean, it's just, it's one of those things where literally every single part of this, it just rings true to me, you know? So even though Rasputin, who, let's face it, that's who Father Gregor really is, even though he never actually came to the United States, at least not in this capacity, that's the fictional part of the story. But the other stuff... I just find it really easy to believe, you know? So, anyway, to get back into the story, 
uh, Margot catches these old ladies' attention and is like, look, guys, I, I just nodded off, especially towards the end of whatever the fuck that just was. So can you tell me, what the fuck was that? And one of them says, well, yes, I... Uh, I don't actually remember everything, but... And then the other one says, in any case, isn't it, it isn't the events that matter, is it? It's the feeling, the infusion of spirit. And... Again, I just... There's an entire world of people that are going to be offended by, you know, this the comments I've made about women, and God knows what I'm about to say here, but guys... You can be offended by it. You can't tell me I'm wrong, all right? But again, it it just rings true. I mean, you know, I find that women, when it comes to religion, they tend to be less theological. They tend to be less doctrinal, you know? And they tend to be more uh, feeling-oriented, you know? It... it, it it, or it can be, because I don't want to say that it is, but it can be a little bit more of a superficial type of thing with them, which again, it's not good, it's not bad, it's just fucking true, you know? And that's kind of what we're seeing here. I mean, I could see where women would make, like a certain type of woman, especially one that's been drugged, she might actually be very capable of believing this, you know, that, hey, look, it doesn't matter what was said or what happened. What matters is the way that I feel, you know, the I don't want to think I want to feel type, you know. So, again, not good, not bad, just fucking true. So, anyway, um, Margot basically thinks to herself, no one knows, but something did happen. I'm so sticky. I've been perspiring and my throat is sore as if from yelling. Lord, it's almost as though I've... And then she just kind of trails off. She can't even bring herself to think about what's happened. But if, guys, again, this was a sex ritual, so what do you think might have happened to Margot, right? We'll get more into that later as this thing goes on. But before Margot can ponder in horror too much over what's just happened to her, she, she happens to notice Madame Zara leading... Uh, heading down this, this kind of secret stairway. So she follows her, ends up getting into a conversation with Madame Zara, and basically has the door slammed in her face. Madame Zara doesn't answer any questions and basically says, look, get the fuck out, all right? This is no place for you. Brother Gre Gregor answers all questions in time, you know? And in short... Fucking, you're not welcome here. So, elsewhere, all of these people are basically toasting the year of 1935. And for those of you who don't remember, basically there was a big push, I would say starting in the mid-1940s, for the American people to start seeing the Soviets as our ally. I mean, you can find propaganda posters, especially from World War II, that refer to Joseph Stalin as Uncle Joe, you know? Hey, they just have a different way of doing things than we do, but they've got some good ideas over there, right? They're not that different from us, you know? And, you know, there's a very strong argument that had World War II not happened, 
and I actually, I kind of tend to believe this actually, but if had World War II not happened, one of two things would have happened to America, right? At that time, we kind of found ourselves betwixt and between these sort of competing superpowers in, in the world at that time, right? And especially after the Depression, America had less of a sense of a national identity then. And so a lot of people believe that if World War II hadn't happened, one of two things would have happened. Number one, we would have become sort of like a client state of Soviet Russia. And we ultimately would have gone full communist. Maybe not right away, but sooner or later, we would have gone full communist. Lacking that, the other possibility is that we would have become basically a client state of Germany, and we would have gone full, um, we would have gone full fascist. And that's what would have happened. And had either one of those things happened, well, number one, America obviously would have lost its sense of national self-identity, number one. But number two, had America gone full communist, we would have crushed Germany. Or had America gone full fascist, we would have crushed the Soviets. And I think the, the reality of that wasn't lost, at least on Joseph Stalin. I mean, there's a strong argument that Adolf Hitler never really made a play for America, you know, to win hearts and minds and all of that. And so, you know, this was a little bit of a one-sided contest. But there's a very strong argument that if, you know, if Hitler had basically made a bigger deal out of his foreign policy, especially with respect to America, well, no one's really qualified to say what might have happened. But whatever happened, we know that obviously we went to war. And so we ended up basically claiming a little bit of our own self-identity. And basically this self-image of America as superpower has basically come to dominate I would say the average American's thinking, certainly since the 1950s, but probably since the end of World War II. And so I don't think that America will ever find itself in this type of a position ever again. I, I don't know. I'm, I guess maybe never say, never say never. But at least at this time in 1935, you know, there are a lot of people who kind of figured that America will go either full communist or go full fascist. And then, well, then what do you do, you know? And so there was a contingent. I don't know how big it was, but there was a contingent that kind of had philosophical problems with going either communist or fascist. No, fucker, we're, we're Americans. You know, we're not communists. We are not fascists. This is who we are. And so there was, you know, guys, I'm one of those people who finds... The first, like, the politics of, the of, like, the first half of the 20th century, guys, it's easy sometimes to overlook the fact that it wasn't always the 1950s, the 1960s, the 1970s, and God knows the 1980s, you know? There was a point when America and our national identity, our political identity, it was up for grabs, you know? The... The Depression had had that kind of effect on us, you know? And so we were basically looking to anybody that had strength. And so, anyway, but it, um, I'm, I guess I'm making way too big a deal out of this. But anyway, the point is, the general sentiment on all of this seems to be 
1935, the year that will forever be remembered as the beginning of eternal friendship between the United States and the Soviet Union, which is one of those great historical ironies that immediately after World War II, the United States and the Soviet Union were pretty much at each other's throats. You know, but there was a point when, at least on the American side, every effort was being made in the government and in high society to cement a more permanent alliance with the Soviet Union. Now, like I say, didn't fucking work, or at least it didn't last, you know, put it that way. But that was nevertheless the, the trajectory of American foreign policy at that time. Does that make sense? And so, you know, what we're seeing here is, like, again, I mean, did this literally happen? No, but this type of sentiment, especially in the upper, uh, the upper society, you know, high society, this was very much their attitude, you know? Only good things can come from the United States having an alliance with the Soviet Union. So it doesn't matter if you agree with that or disagree with that. That was the attitude at that time among a lot of people, you know? So Lamont Cranston uh, uh, want, uh, wanders in, and he's basically coming back empty-handed. So for those of you who don't remember, at the end of the last issue, Lamont excused himself from this little party so that he could chase down Anastasia. That went fucking nowhere. And so now he's coming back to the party as Lamont Cranston, and this is basically picking up right where he, where he left off before, which is, I think, good continuity on the part of Gerard Jones. You know, he could have actually moved the story in a different direction at this point, but he makes this special point of tying the second issue back to the first. And again, that's neither good nor bad. It's just true. So anyway, Cranston basically voices his suspicion that someone here has got to know what name she goes by. And the woman that he's talking to uh, basically says, well, I happen to know. After you made such a wonderful spectacle of yourself, I had to ask around. And come to find out, she's some, she, she's some Russian, I don't even know how to pronounce this word. This is emigre, emigre, uh, I don't know, E-M-I-G-R-E, emigre, basically somebody who's from, who's from Russia, that Bunny Wilson picked up. She calls herself Natalie... Karajina, and says that she's sympathetic to the socialist experiment. Does that mean anything to you? To which Lamont replies, I doubt that it's intended to. Now, if we can pick up where we were interrupted, I'd like to meet the console and vice console. I have some unpleasant news for them. Elsewhere, Harry Vincent's been lurking around in the dark and basically just trying to keep an eye on Nichols, who from the last issue, that's who he was tailing, whenever he got jumped by the guys that ended up trying to dump him into the, into the river. So, anywho, <clears throat> basically leads back to this sort of dark mansion, and that's his stakeout. Elsewhere, back at the party. <sighs> basically what we're seeing here is more of Lamont socializing and and gathering information and this kind of speaks to i guess the value that lamont cranston as an alter ego offers you know the shadow does things that lamont cranston on paper can't be seen doing and lamont cranston can go places that the shadow can't 
But everything that the Shadow and Lamont Cranston do basically serve the mission. No matter how incidental it may be, no matter how vacuous the conversation sometimes gets, no matter how unbearably boring Lamont Cranston finds himself at times, at that time, high society was basically one of the best sources of information when it came to insights into world events. And they didn't necessarily, or they may not necessarily have known that, but they were basically movers and shakers who were making the world go round. And so it maybe wouldn't make as much sense today that, you know, all of New York high society is sort of your entree into, you know, world geopolitical events. But at least back then, such a thing was possible. And again, it just kind of speaks to Gerard Jones being kind of a student of history. He understands that. And, and that's the way that he's using Lamont Cranston, sort of as a, as a front man for, the, sh for the, sh the shadow to ask questions that only Lamont Cranston can ask, but kind of phrase it in that sort of bored, high society, playboy type of image. Does that make sense? So, anyway. Basically, Moncrief... Moncrief and I think this is uh, Vasilovich, or is it? Yeah, I'm pretty sure this is uh, Vasilovich, not Zhirkov. It would be wonderful if they put the names on the page, but maybe that's just not intended to be. But could be Zhirkov. I have fucking no idea. But anyway, the guy in the in the communist uniform. So they're basically having it out with each other. I cannot believe this. Algis Moncrief, such a young man, such a future ahead of him. To which the Soviet guy replies, and beheaded in a club for wealthy capitalists. Who can do this? No, I tell you who. One of these capitalists, he's an enemy of the Soviet purpose. A reactionary who, who kills to destroy our mission. So, as ever, Soviets can be rather paranoid as a bunch. Elsewhere... Harry Vincent has broken into the dark mansion, and he overhears a phone conversation that uh, Nichols is making. He says, Hello, yes, you have a banquet in progress in your empire room. Some Soviet-American friendship business. Yes, I must speak with one of your guests there. Soviet Vice Consul Alexander Vasilovich. Okay, so there you go. That guy is Vasilovich. Excellent. The Soviet guy, the paranoid one I was just talking about, that's Vasilovich. Just tell him it's a friend of a friend, and I have news that he will want to hear. Dun, dun, dun. So, Cranston says, uh, Mr. Vasilovich seems particularly distraught, as we see this guy who actually, he's in a tuxedo, not the Soviet uniform. So, I guess I had it right the first time. He's wandering over to a phone booth. The guy in the, in the uh, Soviet uniform, who I guess... This is Zhirkov. He says, he, meaning Mr. Vasilovich, he's a sensitive man. Too sensitive, I think. He makes a mistake sometimes. He mixes up enemies for friends. Elsewhere, back at the Dark Mansion, Nichols says, Vasilovich. I'm going to try my best to pronounce these names. Or this, I don't know if these are names or if this is a language, but he says, Zdravstvi... Druzici, I don't fucking know. And so, 
Harry Vincent says, sliding into Slavic again. Damn. Wish the boss was here. What's old free enterprise or die John Nichols got to say to a Bolshevik bureaucrat? And that is actually the million fucking dollar question. In the last issue, we saw Nichols basically taking a very staunchly pro-American line against this kind of forced policy that would see Joseph Stalin as an ally and friend. Hey, he's not that different from us. Bullshit. Or at least that's that's Nichols's point of view. And so why would somebody like that make contact with, of all people, Vasilovich? What the fuck is going on here? So anyway, back at the party, Vasilovich comes back and says, Gentlemen, I beg your pardon. I'm not well. This telephone call was about Moncrief also. Such talk of bloodshed, it's upset me. To which Zhergov replies, it's a bad night for bloodshed. Mr. Cranston just tells me that a murdered body is found outside this hotel. And Vasilovich says, oh, do they know who she was? Which is kind of telling. Nobody said that it was a she. Zhirkov replies, she? No, no, this was a man, a gypsy man. And then Lamont Cranston says, a woman was seen in the vicinity, but she slipped away unharmed. So Vasilovich is now sweating bullets, and he, and he says, a gypsy. Oh, Bolshoi Spasibo. Whatever the fuck that means. So Lamont Cranston says, the vice consul is a sensitive man indeed to sigh with relief over the escape of a stranger. So that's a little bit passive-aggressive here. But uh, anyway, back at the dark mansion, uh, Nichols says, I don't care how late it is. I don't care about Mr. Ort's sleep. He must speak with me. <sighs> all right, all right. Then take a message uh, to him. Tonight. Tell him the deal with the communists is off if he wants to keep his head on his body. So, Harry Vincent has overheard all that, but he drops his pencil, which makes a sound on the ground, which gives away his position to uh, Nichols, who comes out fully armed, wanting to know just who the hell's out there. Well, the guy who happens to be out there is not Harry Vincent, who apparently has found a place to hide, it's actually Brother Gregor, who who murders Nichols on the spot with a knife and then dives out a window. So Harry Vincent makes a call uh, into the boss, while meanwhile, Margot Lane also checks in, as much as anything, to find out how long it had been since she last checked in. And she had no idea that it had been that long. And she even starts to say, I've just been through... I don't know what. Lost all sense of... Now? In a phone booth on Thompson Street. But I feel uneasy. Tell the chief I'll, I'll await his call at the Black Cat. She steps out of the phone booth and there's a knife waiting for her on the other side with a disembodied voice saying, Not a sound. Elsewhere, back at the mansion, the shadow is going through some of Nichols's uh, personal papers while Harry Vincent's basically filling him in on everything that's happened here. Basically saying that... <sighs> he points out, you know, rather factually, that 
Actually, you know what? We can come back to that. He basically announces that Nichols isn't who he says he is. His name is actually Ivan Nikolaev, a pustule of corruption in the Tsar's government, put there by Tsarina's spiritual advisor, the mad Rasputin. He raped the treasury after Rasputin's assassination, fleeing Russia as the revolution began. He spent his tainted millions on a social position, on teachers to make him an American, and on a secret anti-communist league. And Harry Vincent says, and nobody thought to ask him about this? And the answer to that basically is no one questions a millionaire in America. Thus, the value of my own role as Lamont Cranston. Like all the Rasputniks, he was shrewd in a small way, but in love with brutality and clumsy stratagems. Nikolaev to Nichols. Crude. So, Vincent replies, You talk like you knew him. The Shadow's answer to that is only the name. One of many I investigated while an agent in Moscow during the Great War. Now, let us go, before a servant decides to take a look in on the master. Vincent replies that this has got to be a political issue. And the Shadow's answer to that is no. The gypsies are the key. Moncrief's fiance with her Madame Zara. And now Nichols conspiring with gypsies for the murder of a woman. A woman I thought dead 17 years. And Harry's answer to that is, are you sure you recognized her? 17 years makes some big changes in a woman, dead or not. The Shadow replies, the years may have treated her cruelly since I knew her in Russia, but... Time could have etched her skin twice as deeply, and I still could not mistake that face. So, Vincent doesn't really know when to let things go, because he says, so even the shadow was young once, eh? What was she? A Cossack... What is this word? Shoreen? C-H-O-R-I-N-E? Corrine? Shoreen? A vamp from the Volga? The, re the Shadow replies, no, she was the daughter of the Tsar, which is true, actually. Shrevi pulls up in the cab at that moment and says, Chief, just got a message from Burbank. Miss Lane never made it to the Black Cat. So the Shadow says, hey, we're, we need to haul balls to Greenwich, villain, uh, Greenwich Village then, Shrevi. Vincent says, look, boss, I'm a little young, but I thought the Tsar's whole family was slaughtered by the Bolsheviks. Shadow replies, as did I. Seven years ago, a woman in Austria claimed to be a surviving daughter, but she was a fraud. Which is also true, by the way. Someone did claim that, and she was lying. I traveled there myself to see her face, and I did not know it. The woman I saw tonight left me no doubt. Anastasia Romanova has returned from the dead only for death to come seeking her again. So, Vincent says, she never told me any, any of this. Russia, the Tsar, and the Shadow replies, I never shall. My past is mine. Anyway, so, the cab speeds through the streets and passes a car carrying fu fu uh, Brother Gregor, who, it needs to be said, is in fact Rasputin, because I've already kind of given that away to talk about something else. Anyway, so the uh, Shrevi's cab passes Brother Gregor's uh, uh, car heading the opposite way, and Harry Vincent identifies Margot in the front seat. 
So the shadow says, hey, turn this shit around and pull even with them, Shrevy. A car chase ensues, and the door to Rasputin's car falls open, and then Margot falls out. To avoid running her over, Shrevy uh, has to crash his cab into a fire hydrant. The shadow hops out of the uh, out of the cab with his with his guns pulled, but Rasputin's car is going too fast and and makes a getaway. Harry's cradling Margot in his arms and saying, "You'll be okay now, kid. We've got you." Margot can only say that she doesn't feel so well. The shadow asks, "What exactly is it that happened?" And Margot replies, "The woman Zara took me down to her church." She used chloroform. I remember a fight. Brother Gregor and some women. And some other woman. She screamed. I think I tried to help, but I was so woozy, I remember grabbing something. Funny. An earring. And she holds up an earring identical to the one that Shadow already found earlier in this issue. The Shadow asks Margot just who Brother Gregor is, and Harry basically tries to talk the shadow down saying look she's really not in any condition to answer questions right now to which the shadow replies shut the fuck up you would you know you would not object if it were you who were lying injured so Margot answers that uh, she went to a service something happened but it's queer that's her word not mine and she can't really remember it and she says when I don't think about it it almost comes back but just as my mind closes in on it it's as if something derails my thoughts and the shadow says that look I'm pretty familiar with that because I know the art that creates it that's hypnotism he says that he needs her memories and so she needs to yield to him yield to his eyes yield to the fire opal of his ring and Margot does. And basically what she sees is a memory of that weird religious sex cult that she was a part of. But she also sees the truth of what happened. When Rasputin held up the, the seemingly disembodied head of Lucille Cheviot, it was not, in fact, dismembered. She was actually wearing a black robe and she was kneeling on the stage and then Rasputin basically wrapped his hand in her hair and and basically made it look like he was holding up a severed head but he wasn't she was she was wearing the black robe and that made it and, and that basically blended the rest of her body into the shadows which normally by itself that would not be convincing but since Margot was drugged already to begin with she wasn't really actually seeing what was truly taking place so when Lucille Cheviot started to speak she wasn't that wasn't like a ghost or anything like that or any kind of supernatural whoozy whatsis she was just basically pulling off of a, a, a kind of a crude trick and the only reason it worked is because like I say Margot and the other women in the group had been drugged. After that, Lucille Cheviot got undressed and... Well, you guys have an imagination, so you can just imagine what she and Rasputin did next. So, Margot, along with all the other women, begged for her turn. You know, a little bit of the old Rasputin magic because of the drugs and stuff that she'd been fed. And so, 
I don't know. I mean, to me, this seems kind of like rape. I mean, how is this not rape if you drug somebody and then force yourself on them, you know? How is that not rape? So, I don't know. But whatever. So, um, whatever happened, happened. You know, you guys have an imagination, so use it. And understandably, Margot's kind of upset about that because, you know, guys, rape is rape. So, anyway. The shadow basically says, she, meaning Margot, she lives, but she's still not free. Somehow, she's... Somehow, Rasputin is back from the grave and has followed Anastasia all the way across the ocean. And he's come here and he's searching and will keep searching until he finds her. But, um, there's the complication of the shadow being there as well. And that may complicate Rasputin's task quite a bit. So, that's when it comes out that this Brother Gregor is not just Brother Gregor. He is, in fact... Rasputin. And that is basically the end of the issue. But before I actually start, you know, wrapping this all up, let me just say that I just fucking love the art in this issue, but especially on the last page, where the shadow basically um, unmasks uh, uh, Gregor Yefimovich as Rasputin, the holy devil. And his face is partially covered in shadow. His nose is sticking down over that I don't know, handkerchief, bandana, whatever. The red wrap around his face. One of his eyes is completely invisible. The other one shines through the darkness. He's holding up his silver 45s. And it's just the atmosphere. It's actually all over these last couple of pages. I would say that from about... Uh, I should say probably uh, page 18 going right on through to the very end. You know, the smoke, the fog, the haze. You know, you can't see more than just a few feet at a time. You know, the backgrounds are kind of sketchy. Probably to speed up uh, Eduardo Barreto's deadline and his ability to meet the deadline. But what this works out to and sort of the actual execution is it actually works in favor of the art because it just gives that impression of dense uh, fog and atmosphere. You know, and I just, I fucking love his art. You know, I'm, Beretto is not the greatest shadow artist there's ever been, but he's really damned good. And he's definitely one of my favorites, just not my absolute favorite. But anyway, love this issue. It's very, it's just really pulpy, you know? It's very crime, mystery, noir type of feeling with a lot of pulp elements to it, you know? And I kind of... I'm of the opinion that, you know, you can mix the shadow in with paranormal types of story elements. But you don't have to. Sometimes you can take the Scooby-Doo approach, like we saw with Lucille Cheviot, where it's an illusion that her head's been cut off, but actually she's very much alive. And, you know, what we were seeing were some kind of crude stage techniques. You know, you can do that as well, and either one of those is valid and workable. But like I say, the thing about this that really works for me is the penchant that Gerard Jones has for working in actual, real-world 20th century history, 1930s history, into the story. But kind of esoteric history, because this is one of those things, like I say, the, um, the would-be 
alliance that America was trying to craft at that time with the Soviet Union, that was something that would have been politically incorrect to talk about even 10 or 12 years later. You know, it's like America collectively wanted to forget that the entire 1930s ever even happened. You know, um, I don't know, like chalk it up to, I don't, like a political hangover, social remorse, like collective social remorse that, you know, we will not speak of this ever again. But Gerard Jones is ready, willing and able to speak of this. And so, you know, it's just one of those weird fucked up, just bits of trivia about the 20th century that Gerard Jones doesn't shy away from and which I don't think a lot of people are really aware of, you know, but I would say that from about 1915 to about 1940 or so, America had some really weird fucked up political ideas going on, you know, and it took, of all things, World War II to kind of flush all that out and basically kind of start developing a sort of the type of civic, not quite nationalism, but the kind of civic identity that America had for the latter half of the 20th century, but it was absent from most of the first half of the 20th century, oddly enough. So, anyway, all around, this is just, it's, it's fun as a story, it's fun as a sort of insight into weird fucked up history, and I just adore this title, and I adore this specific issue, so... There you have it. Now, I'm not really sure when I'm going to be able to come back to the Shadow Strikes again. I know that I will. And obviously we know that I'm capable of doing so because I fucking have just done so. But I'm not really sure when I'll be coming back to it. But I know only that I will be coming back to it. I just don't have a, a, a timeline as to when. But that, I think, is pretty much it for me this week. So, bye everybody. I will see you next week. Vietnam War, a conflict that changed America. Of those who served, many came back irrevocably changed, while many did not come back at all. This is their story. Marvel Comics presents The Nam. Join me, Tom Paneris, for In Country, a podcast that covers Marvel Comics series The Nam. Each episode, I will recap and review one issue of the series, as well as provide historical context that's important to understanding the events behind the story. Along the way, I will also take a look at the movies, music, and literature surrounding the Vietnam War. New episodes are posted every two weeks at incountry.podomatic.com. You can find show notes and other media at popcultureaffidavit.com.
so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental, and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonzacore of Milan, Italy. Yeah.